Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey. It's very good to see you. We are in the midst of a series of sermons. The title of the series is Money and the Kingdom of God. And this morning, we're turning our attention to a, a whole set of teachings in the Bible about how our economic lives should bend us toward the communities we live in. And this is one of the fundamental economic principles of the Bible. Now, that's remarkable, that our economic lives, what we do with our money, should bend us to our community. In the Bible, this is foundational economics. So let, let me show you how this plays out. It's quite fun, actually. So let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, verse 10, our Old Testament reading that we heard just a few minutes ago. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 15, is a passage of Scripture that has some real extremes in it. On the one hand, there is extreme wealth. Look at verse 11. Houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and you will eat and be full. Now this is abundance to an extreme. Now, on the other hand, you have verse 15, another kind of extreme situation. The Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now, that's an extreme situation too, right? I mean, a different kind of extreme situation. Here, we face the extreme situation of God's anger and destruction, now, in between these two extremes, abundance and flourishing, joy and feasting and fullness and destruction and condemnation, in between these two issues, we have a fulcrum. And the fulcrum, the, the thing that tips you from one to the other, is your memory. That's really interesting, isn't it? Like, would you have guessed I was going to say that? That it was memory in between these two? But notice what we see at the end of verse 11. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget. That's the trick. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, you, you need to know that the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel, God has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And they are right on the edge of, of the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is really just a series of sermons that Moses preached right before they went into the promised land. And over and over, Moses does this, this very thing. He warns the people that when they prosper economically, they will face the temptation of forgetting God. So, for example, notice, turn a couple of pages to the right, Deuteronomy chapter 8, notice verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
So here we have Moses warning Israel that as the years go by, their prosperity will tempt them to forget who gave them their wealth. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Now you can understand that, right? I mean, that, that makes sense, right? You work really hard. You work hard for years. You're scrappy. You put, all, you put it all on the line and it works and you accumulate some possessions. It's easy in those kind of moments to forget that the reason I could work hard was because God gave me this mind and this body and this ability and this kind of setup. The reason I can earn this money is because of the generous provision of God to me. Now that's one issue. But notice in this verse, in Deuteronomy 8, 17, there's a second issue. Not only is he pointing out that prosperity tempts us to overestimate our own power and to forget God's power, he also shows us that prosperity tempts us to forget the purpose of wealth. Notice again, Deuteronomy 8, 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In other words, prosperity not only tempts us to think, I did it, it also tempts us to think, it's mine. And both of those are how we forget God. Both moves are, are manifestations of forgetting God. One way to forget God is as you accumulate possessions and stuff and wealth and whatever, one way to forget God is to begin to think about how much you've done to get that and you begin to say, I did this. Another way to forget God is to begin to say, this is mine. Both of these are manifestations of the way abundance causes us to give God lip service, but in reality to have forgotten him. So here are the Israelites. Look at it this way. This is my favorite way to look at it. Here are the Israelites, and they, they're fresh out of college. They're out of childhood. They are on the verge of their career. They've done all the hard work. They've gotten there. And right before they launch their career, Uncle Moses comes along and says, now here's the deal. All the hard work you've done, it's going to pay off. You're going to make it. And, and you're going to make it, and one day you're going to look up, and you're going to begin to say, I did this, and it's mine. And I'm telling you, when you get to that point, you've forgotten God. You forgot that God gave you all of the luck in the world to be born in this place at this time, and to get these resources and these opportunities, and he gave you your brain, and he gave you all these things that God gave all this to you. So it was God, a big part of it was God, and it's not yours. So here's the good news. In the book of Deuteronomy, God not only like warns Israel against the dangers that come with accumulation, he also provides a fun solution, which are the best kind of solutions, right? Like here's going to be a problem. Now here's the fun way you can deal with it, all right? So now his fun solution has three parts to it, okay? The first part of God's solution to the way accumulating stuff over time leads to forgetting God, the first part of God's solution to that natural gravitational pull is that we need to develop a regular way of worshiping God 
that focuses economically. Economically oriented worship. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to our second Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. It is a remarkable passage of scripture. It's, a, it's just a mind-boggling paragraph. God is commanding Israel. He's saying, now look, I'm going to give you so much good stuff. And there's a downside to this. And the downside is you forget God. You forget me. And you become proud and greedy. And nobody wants to live with proud, greedy people. Like, have you ever been next to them? Well, not like right now where you're sitting, but... And he said, now I'm going to help you with, with that temptation. And the, way, the first way I'm going to help you is economically oriented worship. I want you to go to worship. And when you go to worship, I want you to take money with you. I want you to take your tithe, the 10% right off the top. And I want you to take it to worship. And in the midst of worship, not before worship, not as some little side transaction, but in the midst of worship, I want you to give it over to the priest who's going to set it down before the Lord. Notice verse 13. And you shall say before the Lord your God have removed the sacred portion out of my house. That's a strange thing. They are to recognize that 10% is sacred. And their job with it is to get it out of their house into the temple. That's their job with it. And they are to do that in the heart of worship. And then when they do that, they then need to every week, every time they do it, rehearse their salvation story. They need to... Tell the story of how they've been saved. That's a strange thing to do with your money. Give your money and then tell your testimony. And they have to do that in their worship. Now, we talked about this last week. We talked last week about how in Scripture, giving jams a spoke into the relentless wheel of greed. It casts money down from the throne of our hearts. Now, that's the first move. That's the first technique or tool that God gives them in order to resist greed and pride. The second thing he gives them is not only does their worship need to involve their money, it also has to culminate in a feast. A feast. Economically oriented worship culminating in a feast was the second tool God gave them to resist greed and pride. 20, Deuteronomy chapter 26 verse 10. Once the Israelite brought their tithe to worship, handed it to the priest. Notice verse 10. And behold, they were to say this. Now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Yahweh, have given me. And you shall set it down before Yahweh your God and worship before Yahweh your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that Yahweh your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who's among you. That phrase, rejoice in all the good, if you just opened your Bible fresh to this passage and read that phrase, you might think it means like, I don't know, do a Pentecostal kind of jig or something. Um, like you need to have some kind of little dancing moment. But actually, if you've read um, the book of Deuteronomy from the beginning, by the time you get to chapter 26, that phrase has already been used a bunch and it's already been defined a bunch. And it doesn't mean have a dance. It means have a party, a feast. 
The solution to money's power to bend us into ourselves, into greed, into selfishness. The antidote is worship where we bring our tithe and then we eat. Worship that involves giving and culminates in joy-filled feasting with the community. Now, for example, go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 22. Here we see it fleshed out a little more. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before Yahweh, your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your flock, that you may learn to fear Yahweh. In the Bible, fearing God is the opposite of forgetting God. So in order not to forget God, you need to have this feast. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when Yahweh your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which Yahweh your God chooses to set his name, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that Yahweh has given you. Okay, here's the deal. So if you live a long way out, and it's going to take like weeks and weeks and weeks to bring your little sheep and your tomatoes and your okra, um, because if they were good farmers, they grew okra. This is, Louisiana has been trying to teach you people this. We're we're growing okra, by the way it works, here in Virginia. Isn't that right, Donna? Donna knows about this. And if your okra, like, gets those brown spots on it, which it does when you pick it and you never get around to cooking it and it's just sitting there forever, um, and your tomatoes are getting bad and all that kind of stuff is happening, he says, look, if the trip takes too long and everything can't make it, sell it at the local farmer's co-op, convert it into money, then take it there. And then look what it says, verse 26. And when you get to the temple, spend the money for whatever you desire. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Children, you should underline that. So your parents, when they're messing with you about how you spend your money, say, I'm just being biblical. Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Not that part, kids. Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before Yahweh your God and rejoice you and your household. Did you know that was in the Bible? This is stunning. In a culture in which meat was only consumed on rare occasions, God is telling them to go above and beyond and pull out all the stops. Steak, dinner, wine, and even strong drink. Now, if you grew up Baptist like me, you know what the Bible normally says about strong drink. Don't. But here's a place in the Bible where it says do. Here we see God is so serious about his people feasting with joy. He commands them to do it. And when you read the whole book of Deuteronomy, you see this is not a one-off. This is not an anomaly. Over and over again, Yahweh commands Israel to party hard before him in national feasts. Now, think about this. This whole book is they're right on the edge. They're right at the start of their career. And and there's Uncle Moses saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have abundance. And that abundance is going to tempt you to forget God and to become enslaved. Again, you just got out of slavery. 
But now you're going to get enslaved to greed and selfishness and pride. That's a real shadow side to what's about to happen. And so God provides them the solution, a way of having abundance and staying grateful to God and humble and resisting greed and selfishness and pride. And the solution is he commands Israel to worship, to make giving their money a critical part of their worship and to use part of that money for a party. And just so that the frugal people don't take over the budget, he spells out some pretty extravagant menu items, food and drink. And he pulls out all the stops like the parable of Jesus with the prodigal son, right? He didn't say, get the loaf of bread and some bologna. He said, kill the fatted calf. Now, that's almost all God says about this party. He really leaves it up to them to party the way they like to party. You know, some of them are streamer people and some of them are confetti people and some of them are like reggae music people and some of them are folk music people. He lets them duke it all out on how they're going to do this party. He only has one other exception. He, he, he controls the menu and he controls the guest list. Other than that, he lets them do the party the way they want to. But he micromanages the guest list. Over and over, he says, you get to do this party the way you want to, but you have to invite the people I tell you to invite. You have no say on the guest list. And all through Deuteronomy, God does this. All through the book, he says, you got to worship. You got to make money a part of it. It's got to culminate in a feast. It's got to be a great feast. And here's who you've got to invite to the party. For example, look at chapter 16, verse 11. You shall rejoice before Yahweh your God. That's the word for throw this big party. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, the widows who are among you at the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Now, we don't have time to go all through the book of Deuteronomy, but listen, he's a nag about this guest list. I mean, some of you, um, maybe you grew up with a father who like says things over and over. My kids can't imagine this, but some of the people in the room can I mean, over and over, God is like, here's the guest list. Okay, I got it. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. You're like, um, you're really starting to get on my nerves here with this guest list. And then you go to bed, and the next day he brings it up again. It's in chapter 12, verse 12, and chapter 14, verse 29, and chapter 16, verse 14, and chapter 26, verse 11. And it just goes on and on. God just keeps repenting, repeating this. Now, I want you to imagine that you are an ancient Israelite, okay? Imagine that uh, you're a moderately successful farmer. And you depend on your hard work and rain and good weather for economic success. You hire immigrants who are passing through Israel to help them out and to help you out. You have servants who work your fields because last season they fell on really hard times and you made loans to them and they can't repay them. So you let them pay off their debt. With work, your children and your spouse are out there with you, working alongside you. And several times a year, God sticks his nose into your business. And he tells you to stop working. 
He tells you to take your eyes off the family business on which your livelihood and your life depend. And he commands you to take everybody in the village with you, including your servants and entry-level employees, including the disinherited widow and the orphan who lives next door, and even the undocumented immigrants who snuck in and are holding up in your area. And it's like God is saying, no, Mr. Everyday Israelite, you are not allowed to come represent your village or your family at the important religious ceremony and leave behind the workers to keep grinding it out. This feast is for everyone, including and especially those who can't afford this feast and you have to pay their way. And so everyone comes to this feast. And there before Yahweh, every Israelites, the poor, the middle class, they didn't really have middle class at the time, but the upper class, every Israelite is reminded at this party that they are sojourners. They are all immigrants. They are all debt slaves to God. That all of them, their abundance is a sheer gift of God. And as they feast together at these parties, the wealthy remember their dependents. And the debt slave and the orphan and the widow and the disinherited and the undocumented immigrants remember that it won't always be that way. The year of Jubilee is coming. Liberation from economic indebtedness is on the way for everybody. You see, when it comes to money, a fundamental economic principle of scripture is that our king calls us to aim our economic life at our community. That's a fundamental principle of money in the Bible. So here's a key question that we all need to grapple with. What is the goal of your economic life? What is the goal of your working habits, of your producing and consuming and saving and investing? See, because our current version of capitalism, of consumer capitalism, subtly but persistently shapes and educates us to orient toward selfish ends, to aim our economic lives to our family unit. I mean, we probably include our spouse or our aging parents or our children in our economic goals, and we certainly would like to tithe what we can, but at the end of the day, our current consumer-oriented version of capitalism trains us to start with ourselves and our families. Make sure you've got enough for yourself, for your family, however you define it, and then hopefully you'll have some left over and the leftovers we give to the needy. In our U.S. cultural climate, we tend to think of society as a collection of individuals, but in the Bible, community is the starting point for the individuals. In other words, the Bible sees the community as absolutely essential for the sake of both the individual and the community. In God's kingdom, we are called to aim at the community for our sake. Now, I'm not advocating socialism or communism. And last week I talked about how much, how deeply impressed I am with capitalism and its ability to do so much that the Bible says economics should do. But the current version of capitalism does have some cracks in the system. It does have some flaws in it. 
And when it comes to money, we need to begin to think that we are not merely a collection of individuals looking out for the best way for each of us to get what we want or deserve. As Christians, we belong to the body of Christ. And our king calls us to bend our economic lives toward our community, to aim our economic lives at our community. And that's an incredible thing. Now, how do we actually do that today? Because we're not ancient Middle Eastern farmers, right? We don't have to travel these long distances and do all this kind of stuff. I think the key to trying to get from Deuteronomy into our life in our world today is that the Bible's three-part solution is to worship with God's people, culminating in bringing our money to God and feasting with everyone. Think of that. Now think about how we are supposed to worship in a way that climaxes in a meal among a rich diversity of socioeconomic groups. So I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about how we as a church can take this seriously and then how we as individuals or families can take this seriously. Let's start with the church. Let's think about something together. When does our church eat together? And who comes? And who contributes? And who only receives? How can our church parties become places where everyone gives, everyone receives, and everyone is welcome? What would that require? Well, when I think about these questions, I'm so encouraged. For one thing, every week we eat a meal together. Every week we do worship that culminates in just a few minutes. We're going to bring our tithe. We're going to hand it to the priest. The priest is going to hold it before the Lord, set it before the Lord. And then we're going to all join around the table and rehearse our salvation story. That's exactly what our worship service is built on. It's built on this model. And that is a great thing. And you're supposed to do that. It's supposed to, it works its way deep down into your DNA and it kind of shapes you. And we eat this meal and We've got people in our church. Jeremy, did you bake the bread today? Oh, in the first service. It was pretty good. Who baked for this service? Well, Brenda, we'll see. I'll let you know which one was better. No, we've got these, you know, we don't have like saltines. These people are in their homes. They're making this bread. We don't have like bottom shelf Welch's grape juice. We have port, you know, to drink. And everybody gets some, right? Young and old, good looking and the rest of you. We all get to come to this feast. <laughs> this is really encouraging. A another way that I'm encouraged when I think about our church is that we've got these really cool traditions. Easter. I hope you've been a part of our Easter tradition. We, the vast majority of our church, we get up early. We go to the cook's house on this mountain. We have this early morning worship service. And then we all have brought potluck. And we eat a meal together and we rejoice together. And some of you bring your little bitty things that aren't very good. And some of you bring amazing things. And it doesn't matter what you brought. You get to eat any of it that you want to, right? And we've started this on our Pentecost party. We've started to find a way to have worship that culminates in feasting at Pentecost. But I think we need to do more of it. Last time I counted, there's like six or seven of these big parties every year in Israel. So I think we need to keep figuring out how we can keep doing this. Like too many people think that Christianity is about don't. But don't you get the feeling here it's about do. It's like, okay, do this. Have this, have this great meal. You don't normally eat meat. Eat meat, right? And have these amazing things. We need to build our church into our church a better rhythm of feasting that brings together rich food, drink, 
scripture reading, foot stomping singing, and everybody's invited to bring an instrument, be a part. A friend of mine in his church in Nashville, they, they developed a tradition around Advent where a couple of churches come together for Advent and they've all made a commitment. They're going to, resisting the Christmas craziness, they're going to worship more, spend less, give more, and love more. So what they do is these two churches get together and about 100 people cram into this Irish pub in downtown, Nash, in downtown uh, Memphis. I think I said Nashville, I meant Memphis. They sing raucous Christmas, quote, he, told, he wrote, we sing raucous Christmas carols in public and raise thousands of dollars to fund the digging of wells in parts of the world that desperately need clean water. People who don't know Jesus show up to the pub for a drink. They hear us singing and shouting and reading the story of the king's arrival and they see us giving lots of money for wells for the poor and they see that the kingdom of God is a generous, joyful kingdom. All right, so there's some thoughts. Our church, guys, we need to figure this out together, how we can do this better and more. Okay, let me just spend just a minute or so talking about each of us in our own homes. How can we bring this into the places where we live? Well, first of all, man, do you know how many people in our church are so good at this? There are so many people in our church who look at their houses as outposts of God's kingdom. And you've developed these habits of having regular meals with other people who aren't like you. See, one of the problems about the U.S. kind of housing market right now, it's continually moving us into groups and neighborhoods of same people, same socioeconomic levels. It's driving us into these homogenous places. And this says we've got to come to the place where the wide socioeconomic diversity of the community actually feasts together. And so we need to do this in our homes. What if you developed a habit of having a regular meal, maybe once a week, or if that's too much for you, once a month, or if that's too much for you, once every two months, where there is someone at your table who is different from you. Invite them to bring their food, to share, or to help you cook. In the kingdom of God, potlucks are better than soup kitchens. It's a more leveling place. And one of us have to, some of us need to unlearn the habits of providing everything at the meal. All right, I'll wrap up with this. When it comes to money in the kingdom of God, one of the things God commands is that we become radically committed to loving one another and welcoming each other through meals. Every road to the economy of God's kingdom runs through the creation of community. And the starting point for creating community is feasting. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore a lot more in the scripture about money and economics. We're going to look at money and, the, and justice, and we're going to look at money and work, and we're going to look at money and poverty and money and homelessness. But always remember this. In the Bible, justice is important, but supper is essential. And if you're a social justice crusader who doesn't have different people than yourself into your home, at your table, eating meals together, you're getting the cart before the horse. And so what we've seen this morning is God's solution to the way... Uh, Abundance tempts us to pride and greed is a fun solution. 
It, it's the role that meals can play in shaping our hearts and our minds to aim the whole of our lives at the family of God and at the community we live in. We must go out of our way to welcome people, those on the margins, and we must have meals that serve as the key practice for doing this. Let's pray.